everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and I'm really glad to have you listening. For episode two of this, I guess it's my this new season, although it feels like just one continuation of a lot of different conversations, um, I had the real true pleasure of speaking with June Lee, uh, the author of Neotenica, uh, a book that was recently released in the summer of 2020, an interesting time to release a book when we talk about that. And it was released by Nightboat Books, which is an amazing publisher. And we have had actually at least one, maybe two guests actually on the podcast that are affiliated with Nightboat Books. So I'm a big fan. Jun Lee lives and writes in femininity and feminism. Jun is the author of two works of fiction, 94 and Lace Sick Bag, as well as various essays on queer theory, feminism, and fiction writing. June is Associate Professor of Gender Studies and Creative Writing at Rhode Island School of Design, and he lives in Brooklyn with his partner, Roderick Schrock, and their rescue dog, Nella. Um, I, I have no announcements other than an encouragement to continue to to continue donating money as you can to causes that matter to you to not forget that both the global pandemic and the fight for an end to white supremacy, internalized white supremacy, is an ongoing struggle. It's a long, long process that we all need to take care of ourselves around engaging in, but also continue to participate in the ways that you can you know if you're a white listener I really encourage you to make reparations and to research how to do that and to do that with intention I know that in my last uh, episode when I interviewed Lama Rod I um, encouraged folks to reach out to me to talk about their experiences as white settlers owning homes on stolen land. And some people have reached out and have made some really interesting uh, and helpful suggestions. I'm still very curious about how people are navigating that. Um, and I'm open to hearing more from folks. Um, certainly there's not a graceful and easy, uh, useful way to do that, but I, um, I do, I am in the process of learning how to do that with integrity. Um, and I encourage you to do um, your own versions of kind of self-investigation. Um, and I also, I guess I do have one announcement, which is when this, when this airs, there will be uh, a couple days before Embodied Testimony, the program intensive that I run each year um, starts. And you can check uh, my website to see if there are any last minute openings or spots available. Um, it's a four month long program that we do on Zoom. It's an intimate group of people. It's a very generative, reflective space and a space for inquiry and generativity. We talk a lot about our bodies, sex, desire, complicated things, all things that June and I talk about in this interview. So I really hope you enjoy the conversation that we had. I think we both enjoyed it and I encourage you to purchase June's most recent book, Neotenica, preferably from Nightboat Books. Thanks everyone for listening.
Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, this is a little like return. You know, you did one of the um, dispatches earlier uh-huh. this, I don't know, a couple months ago, maybe. And yeah, I yeah. really, I guess we're still, we're still living. I thought maybe when we talked next, we would be in kind of somewhat of a different place, but I, I guess in some ways we're not, we are still living in a time of a global pandemic. And I don't know if how it's kind of settling in for you. Um, I mean, I think it's like, you know, it's odd because it just feels like, I mean, I'm lucky to have a partner that I live with. So I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I can't imagine what it would feel like to be like a single person and Mm. longing for like, you know, love and or sex and Mm -hmm. just, you know, just being totally alone. So I'm lucky in that way, but I think like, you know, it's been, in some ways it's been not as traumatic for me for other reasons, because I'm kind of like a homebody Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, like a hermit recluse kind of person anyway. But I think it's like, you know, it's odd to be kind of like, I mean, speaking about bodies, I think it's odd to be kind of constantly, you know, being asked to think about your body or kind of like your micro components of your body all the time. Mm. I think that's like, you know, yes. It's like, I don't know myself. You know, like, like, like I know my hands or my feet or, you know, or my hair or something. It's just like, but so to think about like, oh, like, you know, where are my cells going out to or whose cells am I taking in? That seems Mm -hmm. like it's a like, it's stressful and kind of like, I mean, obviously it's stressful. It's stressful for everybody, but also like kind of like almost like, like an unrealistic expectation, you know? Yeah, I think so. I think it's interesting to say it, to put it like that, because I think that so many people are reaching, depending on where you're living and what's yeah. been happening, but are reaching kind of this, um, at least from what I've observed, and maybe this is specific to being in New York, but, mm-hmm. you know, really like a kind of a saturation level with that with the yeah. ability of the task that you just described, like the actual, yeah. you know, awareness, yeah. bodily awareness at all times is already yeah. just almost impossible for us as we're conditioned yeah. to. And then yeah. to, to kind of be asked to, to tend to those things is, is really, I think it's like really flooding and um, yeah. it'd be interesting to think about, you know, now and going forward, how, how different, groups of people and individuals are sort of metabolizing that task of yeah like thinking about or being aware of the body and in and I imagine I just imagine that when you teach when you start teaching that you will encounter kind of your students and your kind of younger folks their responses to to that that level of self like body awareness or reaction yeah. to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's very, I mean, I think when you say flooding, it's really right. I mean, I think it's like saturated and kind of like flooding out because, you know, at some point, I mean, to me, it's just all about, or not all about, but it, like so much of this is about kind of like control and like, control sometimes like to a paranoid degree like oh I have to control all of my body fluids Mm. nothing can you know you can't color outside the line at all and it's not like you know not it's not like you know I'm I'm like oh I need to go spray people with my saliva or something but it's just kind of like and you know I'm a Virgo I'm like usually like a very control oriented person Mm -hmm. but you know, I, I feel like our bodies, like this kind of like idea that like we can control every aspect of our kind of like fleshly self. That's like very, that is like a different kind of fear or different kind of like stress. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can definitely. I'm also a Virgo, and I can definitely. Oh, you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Virgo. I'm a hermit, and yeah, I definitely relate to that kind of like inborn, maybe already tendency towards yeah, kind of control of self and contemplating yeah. that. Um, yeah, and so, but yeah, I think that the thing about the like controlling our body fluids. I guess I'd, I'd like to talk, I guess we'll talk more about that sort of as we kind of move yeah. into the interview, but maybe we could just start with a little bit of a contemplation about some of your earlier memories of mm-hmm. learning about what it meant to be in a body, um, yeah. messages you, you got about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for me, the earliest kind of moment that I kind of was aware about this thing called a body or my body is, you know, probably when I was like, I want to say like maybe five, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, but around there, like five years old and, you know, just kind of like having people around me, like you know, like family, friends, or even like strangers being like, oh, you know, what a cute girl, or this person looks like a, this kid looks like a girl, you know, because I'm a biologically male person, but like as a kid, you know, I was always mistaken for a girl, you know, when my parents or my mom would like take me out somewhere. And, and it was like an interesting kind of like, realization about my physicality weirdly because you know I was like oh you know this like contrast between kind of like looking like what these people said a girl was but Mm -hmm. then knowing for a fact that I was a boy because you know my parents were were like you know you have this thing called a penis (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. so so it was like to me, it was like, like, what does that knowledge mean? Like, you know, because it's like, supposedly I know that I'm a boy because I have this little thing between my legs that I urinate out of. But then like everything I do or things that I liked, you know, which were, you know, at the time, like, you know, dolls, Mm. you know, like pink stuff, like, you know, like girl manga books, like just Mm. girly things that meant somehow that contradicted like this little thing between my legs, you know? Mm -hmm. So that was really like my first kind of knowledge about like my body thinking like, Oh, this fleshly thing that I'm carrying around with me that holds me has some other meaning or has like this kind of contradictory meaning, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, when I hear that it, I mean, it brings me in a lot of, different directions just thinking about your work your current work or you know your yeah um work today the novel that you know you released recently um neotinica and how there is a lot of and i know with uh, with other you know essays and things that you've written that there is Mm -hmm. this real um continuation of the um, contending with that that contradictory bodily experience um yeah when I was actually when I was reading just this um review of it actually was an interview um from Lambda Literary um oh yeah of your of the book you know something that really struck me um was this this moment when you said um, I speak as someone who was rescued from objection by totally mm-hmm. embracing femininity. Um, yeah. And I mean, you go on to kind of talk about what that means, but yeah. I guess, how did you get to that place or did yeah. was it hard to get to that place given the messaging you grew up with or were there, yeah. were there forms of support or non-support yeah. that, that kind of got in the way? Yeah. I mean, that's such like an important question. And, you know, when I think back, I think that like, uh, 
how did I, I mean it was a long process to totally embrace femininity because I think you know like the, the moment I was just telling you about like when I was like five or six it's mm-hmm. like the funny thing was you know like my parents I mean when I mean they were together at the time but both my father and my mother they both you know they never were like oh we're not gonna buy you this doll you know mm-hmm. or or we're not gonna buy you this girly book or you know I was like totally obsessed like a lot of I think you know uh gay boys like my age you know I'm in my mid-40s it's like at the time like Linda Carter as Wonder Woman and you know Lindsay Wagner as a bionic woman like Charlie's Angels all that that kind of like you know femininity mixed with like action or kind of authority Mm. anyway they, they never my parents were never like oh you can't do this because you're a boy. Mm-hmm. But so they bought me dolls and they let me do all this girly stuff. And actually, you know, like my part of the reason that I always was mistaken for a girl was like my mom cut my hair in this like long bowl cut that was very, very long, like almost to my shoulder. And like our kind of like, you know, rel- other kind of older relatives would be like, oh, like, you know, give that boy a haircut, you know, he looks like a girl. And my mom would just refuse, you know, (laughs) she was, I mean, she just liked that look. So it was like a mixed messaging because on one hand they were supportive like that. But then Mm -hmm. on the other hand, they kept being like, oh, you know, go outside and play more, or you should like do more boy stuff. So it was more like, so my parents gave me kind of supportive but like mixed messages it wasn't like negative and it wasn't really until like I got much older like you know kind of pre-adolescence and adolescence where it really came to a head and I was like oh if I'm embracing femininity that means I'm a fag which was a whole other process Mm -hmm. you know and I think like you know I went through kind of several kind of Kind of like bodily trips insofar as like you know I think around seven, 16 or 17 I was like okay like I'm going to totally change my body because I'm tired of being this you know like skinny kid so I started like working out and I actually like you know totally beefed up so between like 18 and I would say like 25 I was like a good like 40 or 50 pounds heavier than I am now. So it was like, I was totally like a little muscle queen for mm. a lot of my like youth. And then like in my t- mid twenties, then I was like, there was like a sense of what I think of like deflation where I was just like, you know, I was like, Oh, I went through this life of kind of like being a muscle queen and like trying to feel like, you know, Oh, if I'm, muscular if I have this cut body it will attract men and I will feel fulfilled and all of this stuff but there was always something missing because that like the love of femininity and the kind of inherent kind of connectivity I had with that never way I mean it was always there I wasn't even like repressing it you know it was just kind of like it was kind of like background but I think like when I hit you know almost my thirties, kind of in my mid twenties, I stopped working out and I let my body kind of like go back to what it looked like, like in high school, you know, which was, which is very thin and, you know, whatever. And it was kind of synchronous with like, you know, kind of realizing that the whole time, you know, I never let go of my connection with femininity and kind of like embracing it fully and not, you know, and so like, it was like a bumpy journey, you mm-hmm. know, because like, you know, being uh, to say, to say the least, because it's like, you know, as a, certainly when I was coming of age to be a gay male person and be feminine was, you know, it was not a good thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, there were, I mean, I think there's still things like this. I don't know, because I don't or anything but it's like you know like no fats no fam it's that kind of stuff you know so so there was a lot of self-hatred that I had to kind of like flush out to get to that point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that felt very that felt very wandering no (laughs) I mean 
I think it probably was. It sounds like it was, you know what I mean? Yeah. It sounds like, you know, there was a very particular um, kind of code of operating that you were aspiring to yeah. align with your sexuality maybe. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and kind of the messiness of how we, I don't know. I also can kind of relate to this in terms of aging, like how we, how we gather back, you know, parts of ourselves that we, yeah. do, um, in that yeah. performance of, you know, like this yeah. is my sexuality, this is my gender, you know, and, and totally, it, totally. it becomes a little more complicated, but I, but I also think that we need sort of like support or, you know, people to look to, or, you know, yeah. I mean, the, your novel comes to mind again because it's just sort of like a way of your more, most recent novel, just the the way it lays out one version of really complex relationship to body and sexuality, um, yeah. different characters. And I think we we need those those kind of depictions. But I wonder what, you know, if if you can recall, what are the the kind of things that might have helped support you maybe in, in kind of returning to or gathering back, like, or finding a, a particular like subset of a community or yeah, whatever it is. Well, I'll say, you know, I've always been, you know, very interior oriented. I mean, I was like a very bookish kid. Like I hated playing outside and I hated going outside actually. And, you know, I was, constantly reading I was either like reading or watching tv or whatever and I think my community really first community were books I have to say and this is really you know like I think the the philosopher Felix Guattari like talks about like being friends or lovers with books and like that always like stays with me because you know, like books are my friends, like, and really, you know, I remember when I was like 12, you know, I mean, I was like a really like voracious and probably kind of like annoyingly precocious reader. So it's like, you know, when I was like 12, like I, you know, read, uh, the color purple by Alice Walker mm-hmm. in like one sitting. I, I still have like a visceral memory of reading that book. Like I was like, I shut myself up in my room that I shared with my sister, but she wasn't in there at the time. And I just like, it was like a Saturday and Saturday or Sunday. And I just spent the whole day from like, you know, afternoon till it got dark reading that book. And I was just like reading Celie's story. Even though Celie's a girl, she's a black girl. She's a black lesbian. She ends up being a lesbian. It's just her story just like, struck me in so many ways as being mine which was weird because I had nothing kind of like physically or historically in common with her Mm. you know I wasn't a victim of rape I wasn't a victim of you know abuse all of these things but there was something about how she got through those Mm. traumas to come to herself that really struck me in a way that I mean I couldn't name it at the time all I knew was like it just like became my avatar. And so it's just like, you know, books were my friends, books were my avatars. And I just think that like, you know, that's like the first thing, you know, because I think that's why I became a writer also, I think, because for me, like stories, especially novels and books, like they're kind of like things that you can wear. I I mean, it's like a little weird to think about that way, but it's like, you know, instead of telling stories about yourself, I always think about kind of like stories like clinging to you. They're like kind mm-hmm. of clothing or they're like part of your skin or yourself, you know? So, you know, like actually like I just devoured a lot of like black women writers growing up. So, you know, starting with Walker, like Toni Morrison and Gail Jones and Entuzaki Shange, those were kind of like just writers I just consumed like crazy and kind of like, I feel like I really kind of like incorporated a lot of what they talked about in terms of feeling and body, like into me, it really meant a lot to me, you know, 
in terms of like a real physical community, I think, you know, weirdly, you know, I spent a lot of my 20s like hanging out with lesbians mm-hmm. and they, you know, I was like, you know what, I don't know if the people say this anymore, but I was like a dyke tyke, you know, <laughs> so <laughs> like the inverse of the fag hack. And, you know, it's just like all my friends were lesbians and I just like hung out with them and I really you know, I almost said like they nurtured me, but it wasn't even like they nurtured me. It was just like being part of like this great gang, you know, mm-hmm. like, and they gave me a sense of kind of queer identity and a queer kinship that I really didn't find with gay men because, you know, like with gay men, I just felt like, you know, you would hook, you know, I would hook up. And for me, I was, for me, like sex was always like a gateway to intimacy. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't really enjoy sex with a guy unless I could be like, oh, I could get to know him better mm-hmm. afterwards, which, you know, which is like, which you know, makes me not very, maybe not very popular with, with, within gay dating circles. Cause I was so what the kid who was always like, you know, like, you know, I would, to with this guy that I would you know with a guy that I would hook up once in a while I'd be like so what are we doing like what are we really doing you know I'd be (laughs) constantly you know that's like my key question always and immediately like that's such a like easeful relationship with the dykes and the lesbians yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly so much processing of yeah 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 exactly and so like, I always think about, like, I don't know what came first, the chicken or the egg, because I'm like, like, did I get that way about, like, processing intimacy and sexuality because I hung out with lesbians so much? Or did I hang out with lesbians so much because I was already like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, to me, it doesn't matter because I treasure those friendships sure. and, the, and, the, and the community that they mm-hmm. gave me and give me still, I think, you know? So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean... Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. What is it like for you to kind of like there's almost a disidentification I guess with I would say I guess more conventional gay culture community yeah. whatever I don't I don't know exactly know how to describe it that sounds really broad but you know I guess yeah. I just wonder what it feels like to kind of try to the the notion of queer has always really resonated for me in, I think, and maybe we, you know, we're kind of of a a similar age. And so we, we, perhaps the notion of queer kind of solved, at least for me, solved some some problems that I had Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in terms of my identity um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not fitting in and in, certain ways and I actually never really identified as a lesbian because I you know that was gender wise was kind of complicated for me you know so there was a lot of ways yeah. that clear yeah. and, um kind of solved some issues some some dilemmas for me and I wonder if something similar you're kind of getting at something similar that that yeah 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 definitely definitely I mean hundred percent the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, coming, yeah. Like growing up or, or kind of coming of age, like in the late nineties, I mean, queer was like the word and identity that was like a savior because it was like, you know, when I was much younger or when I was younger, like, you know, in high school, middle school, high school, I actually was like, oh, like, am I actually a transsexual at the time? You know, mm-hmm. we didn't have transgender back then. It was like transsexual. I was like, am I actually transsexual? I mean, had to go through a whole process to be like, okay, maybe I'm not that, but then what am I, you know? And even even within like, even figuring out the homo-hetero, getting out of the homo-hetero, kind of figuring out that divide. Yeah. Exactly all the issues you're talking about, kind of like this kind of not fittingness was... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. totally solved by the word and the identity queer. It was so liberating to be like, 
And also, you know, like just like the etymology or the kind of the history of the use of that word, because it is a word that's like a recaptured word. You know, it was like a pejorative that the community politically recaptured for our own use. So to me, it was so empowering to kind of use that word and identity. Mm-hmm. I'm not so sure now, like, I don't yeah. know if, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not so sure. I mean, I'm not, so, I'm not so quick to, I mean, yeah, I'm not so sure now. I'm not sh- sure that it means the same thing or has the same reverberations it has now. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. definitely queer was a, was a queer and queerness was something that was like really vital to, mm-hmm. to, to survival. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When you say you're not sure now, and I kind of laughed because I, I think I probably feel similarly, but you know, what is it for you that <clears throat> feels maybe uh, lacking or potentially lacking in this kind of way that queerness um, is yeah. exists in discourse now? Like in terms of your own your own body experience and your own yeah. you know sexuality, yeah. life, and all yeah. that. I mean, I think what's lacking is the way that the word circulates in mm. our culture. That to me is like the first time it really misfits because I think like in the, you know, in the nineties and even in the early two thousands, I felt like I felt very comfortable saying queer because it really encapsulated like all the kind of the jagged edges mm-hmm. of my sexuality and gender, you know? But like I think these days it feels like you know, I don't know if it's like post-queer eye or something, but it's just like, it feels like flat. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to kind of like say, it just feels like flat. It almost has kind of like lost meaning for me because it's not so much about a kind of galvanizing word, you know? It's like like not, not for people who have these jagged edges to kind of use the word and galvanize them to become to like emphasize those edges, it, it has become kind of like this, almost like a big, like, like tent, like a tent to cover everything mm-hmm. so that it becomes so flat and almost like meaningless for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I want queer to stand in for like, you know, not just everything, but like an individualized kind of sexual and gender identity. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like, that's kind of like my initial sense of it, you know, or my person. Yeah, I hear that. And I, you know, I'm just, I'm thinking about, you know, noticing the people that, um, or some of the people that actually wrote really sweet, you know, um, <laughs> things on the, on the back of your book. Um, mm-hmm. And Andrea Lawler, is a person who I'm just thinking about like how you both sort of situated your stories, although they're very different um, in the Bay area, in the early aughts, in the night and, and for, you know, the nineties and, and kind of almost like hearkening back to um, the time when it felt like the, like these jagged edges of sexuality and gender were a little more alive. Um, yeah. And, and I think that in order to do that, it seems like in order to do that and to bring us back into that time, I mean, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is another person, you know, that, yeah, totally. it, that like you have to, or you, you chose to, I guess, really talk about kind of like the viscerality of femininity of yeah. uh, the body. And I mean, I guess this kind of goes back to like our, our earlier conversation about, you know, bodily fluids and this yeah. turn of an awareness of the specificity of the body and the, the body is contamination. The body is dangerous. I mean, the queer body yeah. at times, you know, was dangerous. Um, yeah in terms of the social, in the social meaning of it. Um, yeah. And the flattening, I think, as you discuss, is, is sort of what, you know, kind of like loses a potency. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I yeah. just wonder if like the, the body, the way in to kind of trying to understand the complexity of 
queerness is is in kind of really going into the specificity of the body as you do in, in your book. I think you really, you know, hit it on the nail. I mean, I think it's really, it is that. It's the specificity of the body. It's like the viscerality of the body, you know? And I think it is something to do with like, you know, going back to these like early odds or kind of 90s kind of sense of queerness or kind of queer urgency or queer viscerality that, you know, I'm interested in. And as you said, like Matilda and Andrea are interested mm-hmm. in as well. But, you know, it's like also one that at least, you know, <laughs> as like a, like a person who's, you know, in middle age, it's like hard to be or, you know, I'm very also like aware to be not be like, oh, this old person who's like, <laughs> Like, oh, things are so much better in the nineties, even though they, yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, but but I think that the kind of connectivity that weirdness had to the body is something that you know has been kind of like either kind of diluted or kind of mm-hmm. flattened out these days, you know. And I think you know, like you know, like even the you know the. T- I mean, when you say the title of your podcast, you know, living in the queer body, I mean, it's like, that's precisely it. I mean, I think like queerness is like a, you know, like over anything else, it's like a bodily fleshly state, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that like, you know, because of so many things that are kind of, you know, that have shaped kind of our society and culture now, like among them kind of like digital culture, it's like the body or the flesh is just flattened down in general, you know? And I'm like, you know, in terms of like body fluids and stuff and, and, and the dangerous body to me, it's like, like, and again, like being a Virgo, it's like, you would think that I would love kind of all like the idea of control and stuff. But I think what I learned by being queer and embodying a queer body you know, in the 90s and early thoughts was like, oh, you know, there's certain things that you can control, but there's a lot of pleasure to be had and things you can't control. I mean, that seems like such a, like a, I don't know, like a dumb lesson or something. Like you should have learned that earlier or I should have learned that earlier. But I mean, it's something about kind of, you know, not subscribing to like a discourse of like, you know, health, you know, like, mm-hmm. or health and health and goodness, or, you know what I mean? It's like, like, sometimes, like, like, you know, being a dangerous body is okay. Yeah. And it can actually be productive and fruitful, you know, not just for yourself, but like other people, and perhaps like even the world, you know, if you're ambitious. And I think that like, there is a such a like fear of I, I I mean I just sense like a general kind of fear of dangerous dangerousness in bodies. And this is even like before the COVID thing, you know what I mean? I mean, in terms of like gender and sexuality, I think like if something is deemed dangerous, it's just not productive or it's just kind of like squashed. And I think that's what I really wish we could revive a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're definitely, I think, the way that you, I think you spoke in the the dispatch for the podcast and also thinking about this idea of dangerous bodies and contamination and these questions does feel like it's connected to discourses around HIV and AIDS and how the the kind of like reverberations of that. I'm going to put it in quotations, like the, you know, the quote AIDS crisis. Um, yeah. 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 Very alive um, in, in a different way is that there, I just wonder what you think about that. Like that, that kind of body is, you know, a potential site of contamination and how we navigate yeah. also thinking about bodies as, um, you know, dangerous and, and, that there's pleasure in that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that like, you know, the thing about kind of queer 
bodies and contamination is that like, I think, you know, during, during the, as you, I, and you put it correctly in quotes, the AIDS crisis, I think the difference between like the queer communities and gay and lesbian communities, you know, uh, and the straight community, their responses is that I think straight communities thought of bodies as contaminated, toxic, mm. you know, p- potential sites of like infect, you know, kind of yeah. spreading infection. Whereas within the gay community, like people who contracted HIV were not contaminated. They were, they contracted a virus, you know, and they were living with HIV, you know? And I think that's a phrase that I think the straight community never really caught on to. I mean, that's a phrase I use all the time. You know, it's just like, you know, it's like they're living with the virus. They're living with an illness. They're living with, you know, this thing in their body that's like eventually hurting them but they're living with it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think like, as a member of the queer community, you know, there were all these, obviously people who died and people who were very sick from it, but there were also people, you know, there was like a big spectrum of how you lived with the virus, mm-hmm. you know? There were like people who were very frail, but then there were people who were like in better shape than I, you know? And it was just more about like, like knowing it wasn't about like, oh, marking these people as contaminated or kind of like feeling like, you know, they were dangerous because they were going to hurt other people. It was more like, oh, this is the way that you deal with a certain kind of trauma of Mm. life. You know, Mm. it just so happened that in their case, it was like a virus, like a physical thing that was in their cells. But I think it was like a tremendous kind of, of, you know, speaking of like kind of role models or kind of like avatars, like for me, I mean, you know, I mean, I am not HIV positive, but to me, and I know a lot of other people who are not HIV positive, it was just like a really kind of inspiring thing to kind of even have that as just like a regular part of our community, not to be like, oh, look how noble they are, you know, mm-hmm. look how noble they are suffering with illness. It was more like, oh, this is like, a normal part of our community, a big chunk of our community has contracted this virus, mm. you know? And it wasn't about assigning blame or fault or tracking down who gave it. I mean, you know, none of the none of the friends I had who were HIV positive were ever like, oh, I'm going to track down who gave it to me. You know what I mean? It, was, mm. it wasn't about that. It was just dealing with the reality as it stood mm. and, kind of, and, and kind of living with the heart, living with this, living with like the reminder of a trauma, like, you know, in a, in the best way possible. And I think that's such a big, important lesson. Right. This idea that like, there isn't a, when you're talking about health and goodness and purity that, you know, these notions get assigned to white, cis, hetero people. Yeah. Yeah. And that, there is this kind of different orientation altogether that it involves a a sort of, as you said, living with the, the trauma that resides in the body as, as kind of something that one does one is part of life um, that we aren't, it, it doesn't mean that we're all, um, unhealthy quote unquote or not pure or not good but that there that those notions are kind of you know irrelevant in a way absolutely um, and, yeah absolutely yeah um i mean i think about like people i knew you know back in san francisco when i was living there you know they're like you know guys with like paws tattooed on their chest you know mm-hmm. and it's like it's that kind of, you know, it's like even going beyond kind of like turning the side of trauma into something beautiful, something that allows them to kind of find like an additional meaning in life that they wouldn't have found otherwise, you know? Mm. And it's like, I mean, there's 
you know, the other thing, other, you know, kind of like book friend that I always think about is like, there's this moment in Henry James's Portrait of a Lady where this kind of like ditzy character, Countess Gemini is like, you know, she says like something to the effect of, this is not an exact quote, but something like, oh, there are like, you know, very good feelings that have very bad reasons. And there are very bad feelings that have very good reasons, you know? And that's kind of how I feel about, you know, kind of contamination and health and goodness, because it's like, what the world may see as contaminated or bad may actually have like a really beautiful underside, you know, mm. and that's kind of what being queer is, I think, or mm -hmm. was anyway. It was, right. Yeah. So I guess, you know, maybe we could talk just a little bit before we end about your book and how, yeah. and everyone should read it and, it's really compelling and um but I, I wonder if there's like what you in the context of maybe some of what we were, were talking about today you know what what do you think is kind of contained in the book or in the process of writing the book for me I mean it's you know I mean I came upon the title like Neotenica because uh, I came upon it when you know, like years, I guess now it's been like five years ago when we, when my partner and I first got our dog and our, our rescue dog. And, you know, I was doing a whole lot of like dog research and I came upon this phrase that was, you know, neotenic, which is about kind of like animals that retain their kind of child features into adulthood, which is kind of what dogs do versus like wolves. That's what I learned. And I think what I was really wanting to kind of think about or contain in the novel was this idea of, you know, and I think you and I, you know, you were kind of talking about kind of inner child stuff before. And it's like, I'm a kind of believer in the inner child insofar as like, you know, there's things about childhood or childhoodness that I think carry us into adulthood. And part of that is kind of this kind of, curiosity about other beings you know mm -hmm. whether they're animal you know animals or minerals or humans you know it's like and and to me it's just like kind of cruising other you know I hate that phrase like cruising but it's just like you know in terms of like a gay or queer mm -hmm. context that like kind of cruising objects or cruising animals or cruising people you know for friends or lovers or your own children even just to kind of see them anew to have these like kind of think about all these kind of micro moments of like contact and recognition and misrecognition mm. and and to me that's really where you build a sense of yourself you know I think and that's kind of what I'm was trying to get at with the novel and really that's what I'm always kind of trying to get at with I think anything I'm writing which is you know I'm trying to think of kind of multiple moments of kind of people or things meeting each other and like what's produced between them like what's the energy that's produced mm -hmm. between them you know and that's what that's what allows each person to kind of create a sense of their self and and that's what I'm super interested in mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's a really beautiful description I think you know that leads us just so perfectly into my last question that I often ask my guests which is if you could go back or maybe even just now, if you could kind of communicate with that younger five-year-old mm -hmm. part of yourself, mm -hmm. what might you want to convey to that part? Oh, wow. Might want to convey. I guess I would want to convey to that kid maybe like, I would want to thank that kid. I would want to thank the kid because like when I look back like on being a kid and being like a you know a femme femme male kid navigating like this kind of sexist and homophobic world I'm like astounded that that kid made it like that kid just like lived through every day went to school, 
read books, had fun, cried, got mad, got depressed, mm. and then like got through it all. I'm amazed because, you know, as a 40 something person, I, I look back at some of the things that I've been through and I'm like, how did I do that? Like yeah. as a child, I mean, the resilience of children, it's just like, I'm like, if, if, if I had to do it now, I couldn't, I would just, I couldn't do it. You know, I would yeah. be like, I can't do any of that. Right. So I would just want to like reach back and, you know, say no words, but like, you know, give a big fat hug and a thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, not only did you survive it, but you also, you know, and just it's very inspiring. You've like really, I think, landed on or found um, so many interesting frameworks for relating to yourself and others um, as a result of those experiences, as a result of surviving. And, and yeah. you know, thank goodness you did because there's, you know, this beautiful book and, and your writing and your work that are, I think, are real testaments to that, um, to the complexity of that survival. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you for for joining me today, and um, maybe you could tell folks just how they can find out about you and the work you do. And yeah, I can be found at girlscallmurder.com. That's my website, but it's just you know very info and my book that you mentioned um neotenica was released this summer which is like a weird summer to release a book mm -hmm. and i always joke i've been joking and half joking that it's actually like my version of mariah's glitter which came out on 9-11 <laughs> so it's like not as not as horrible maybe but you know but but anyway my book neotenica is out from the lovely uh night book books and you can get it directly from them or from anywhere else you buy books, including Target. Oh my goodness. <laughs> weirdly. <fascinating>. Weirdly. <laughs> yes. All right. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much yes. for, for having me on the podcast. It's lovely. Yeah, it's lovely to have you.